This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone you don't know, but whose life, whose voice, you're certain to be captivated by. And today, and today, Bob recalls the day that he left the home of his parents to become a U.S. Marine. Bob recalls the day that he left the home... My flight to San Diego arrived late that night. Must have been around 10 o'clock. We got in. I remember walking down and leaving the plane with about six other guys that were enlisting from Portland. And we got there, and there wasn't anybody there to greet us. It was just people who were leaving and walking down the concourse. We had nobody to greet us. And I, I remember saying to the guy next to me, I said, Jesus, you would have thought they would have had the Marine Band down here to welcome us. So anyway, the area emptied out, and half a dozen of us just standing around there smoking and having a cigarette and talking when, geez, all of a sudden I heard this booming voice just fire at us. And I looked down that concourse and I could see this Marine on a real rapid clip walking fast. And uh, he was heading right towards us and cursing and, and commanding us to shut our mouths, put the cigarettes out and line up for formation for a roll call. And I was standing there, you know, when he appeared in front of us, you know, I looked at him, and boy, I mean, you could see he was sharp, real sharp. He had the campaign hat on. He had a starch khaki shirt, sergeant stripes on the sleeve. He had all the fruit salad and the campaign ribbons on his chest. Shoes were shined like polished onyx. His jawline was as angular as you could ever get. He started yelling and cursing at us as he had us out of the boarding area by then and was telling us how ugly and how stupid we all were. We were the worst lot of human beings he'd ever seen. He didn't know what the Marine Corps had in his mind by taking people like us into the Marine Corps. We were at war. We needed men, not a bunch of weaklings from small little towns around the country. He said he was tempted to ship us all off over to the Navy. Maybe we would do better over there. And then he abruptly ended and told us to march, follow him and march on out of the airport. We get out in the airport and there's this big green bus with little yellow lettering all over it, you know. And we get on the bus, the bus is packed. The bus is full of people. And we get on the bus and it's like almost two, three to a seat. So he marches us all the way down the aisle of the bus, chest, chest to back, right, single file, all the way to the end. Turned, gave us an about face. So now that we're all in this line in the aisle, facing the front of the bus and told us to sit. So we all sat just tightly linked together and the bus was full and now the last plane had come in and we just we went we were going in my opinion we were going to Marine Corps Theater but I was more of a smart aleck that night that would quickly be taken care of the next night so we get to San Diego as we arrive on the base in the middle of the night we pull up outside the receiving barracks. And outside there's these rows of yellow footprints. Every Marine in the world remembers the yellow footprints. And the DI gets up in front and it was black as night on the bus. I mean, you couldn't barely, you could see his silhouette, but you could see the red glow in his eyes and his voice just came out and filled that bus. Now, when I tell you to, you will get off my bus and you will get on the yellow footprints. Do you understand? Yes, sir! And told she maggots got 20 seconds to get off of this bus 
and get on those yellow footprints and God help anybody who's on this bus after 20 seconds. And then he yelled, move. And boy, we just getting up and scrambling and pushing and shoving. Guys are climbing over seats and he's up there screaming and yelling and there's a DI outside the door. He's screaming and yelling and sure enough, when he got to 20 seconds, he just started kicking them in the butt and getting them off that bus. We scrambled outside. We got it under the yellow footprints and we stood there at attention. They were three guys and they were just, these DIs were just moving up and down each line of the rows. Looking at us, making comments about us, yelling at us, and then they told us a single file march into the barbershop. And we opened up the store, we marched into this barbershop, and there were four barber chairs and four barbers in there ready to go to work. And each time, man, those hands never stopped moving. They sheared off that hair until they hit a growth on the scalp. And if they drew blood, then they'd stop. Otherwise, everything is coming off. Anything that is outside of your follicle is going to get cut. And then the floor was just littered with all the really fashionable hairstyles that were very popular back home. But we didn't have any need for hairstyles down here because there would be no women. We would not see any women at all, actually, for quite a while. And so walking through the piles of the hairstyles, and we went in and we got issued our bucket and our toothbrush and razor and a lot of the parts of our uniform, underwear, soap, bar soap. And then we get up into the showers. So we're standing, we've got all this gear in our arms, and we're up there outside the shower. And the DI tells us, here, men, have, you people have 60 seconds to get in that shower and scrub all that civilian dirt off your bodies. You're on Marine Corps ground. This is hallow property. This is holy property here. This is Marine Corps property. Get in that shower. You've got 60 seconds to scrub all that dirt off. Get dressed and fall outside in the large auditorium adjacent to the shower room. We jumped into the showers and the spray. And to help us along, because we had some people who not only were slow, they were, some of them really actually were very stupid, he decided to count down. So we're scrubbing in the steam room going, I hear this voice go, 48, 47, 46, move, 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 damn it, move, 45, 44, 43, I don't see you moving fast enough. I want you moving out of this shower room immediately. 39, 38, 36, and we busting our butts to get out of that shower. And we were half dry, half all naked, half dry, grabbing our uniforms, putting on our clothes, and running out into the next room through a gauntlet of cursing and yelling and shouting and swipes at our head to get us moving. Out on that floor to get out there in the auditorium. And when we come back, more of this story, and what a storyteller, folks. And again, we just find ordinary Americans around the country. These aren't professional writers, screenwriters, script writers. They're you. They're me. They're the person next door. Bob McClellan, The McClellan Files, his story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to the McClellan Files and Bob McClellan's story about the beginning of his time as a U.S. Marine. Let's pick up where we left off. Our uniform consisted of a one, a pair of green trousers, bright white tennis shoes, a belt that was untrimmed and that was so long and hung out of the back loop of my trousers like a tail. I had a bright yellow sweatshirt with a bold red Marine Corps emblem on the top. And everything else was in the bucket. I got out there and lined up across the tables. I had a Marine facing before me and a box on the table in front of me. Looking into the eyes of the Marine across from me and looking at what they had done to him, I realized he was a mirror to me now. I could only imagine what I looked like looking at him. He had the color of a billiard ball, hadn't seen sunlight probably since he was born. His pale skin indicated that all the blood in his body must have retreated deep inside into his interior for safety, no doubt. His eyes were wide, you thought he got stuck by a cattle prod. And he was afraid. You could, you could feel it. You could see it oozing from his pores. I just thought, my God. My God, you know, here I am. I'm looking at him. I'm thinking I'm a Frankenstein. I'm a half-made man. I got all the disgusting, detritus and trash from my civilian life of character and weakness in my body, all of which the Marine Corps thoroughly intended to change. The DIs were walking up and down behind us, and now I, I took things a little bit more seriously here now. I wasn't at the airport uh, shooting my mouth off. DIs told us to take everything that we brought with us, everything, and put it into the box. And into that box went all the pictures that I brought, pictures of my girlfriend, little mementos from home, little gifts from my mom to remind me of home, everything. My clothes, my underwear, everything went into the box. We were ordered to seal that box, address at home, and step back from the table. Stepping back from the table and looking at that box, I realized that box contained my past. It contained all those things that were so important in my life just hours ago. But I knew now it didn't matter to anybody down here. None of that mattered. Not your past. You don't matter. All that matters is do what you're told. You're going to get a new life. The new life you're going to get down here is going to be one of purpose. And you're going to have a purpose and you're going to learn to do it well. And from that purpose, you'll develop your values and your self-respect. Down here, you'll learn to know who you are, where you are, and what you are here to do. But right now, that was a far, far distance from where I stood that moment at the table. All I wanted to do standing at the table was to get the box. I'm sure everybody felt the same way in the room. Get on my clothes and get the hell out of there. I had three years of this ahead of me. D.I. told us to step back, went up and down the table, made sure everybody had done everything correctly, and then standing up in the front, he pointed to the single door at the end of the room, and he yelled, I'm going to give you maggots 20 seconds to get through that door and down those stairs on the yellow footprints. And boy, we hit those doors hard. And going down that stairwell, when your feet aren't in unison, all you can hear is just a constant pounding, boom, 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 boom. 
of a stampede and going down those stairs. Men were pushing each other and shoving each other to get out of the way. Everybody had to get down. It wanted to get down there and be on those yellow footprints. This is not a place you want to piss anybody off. And so we were pushing and shoving. And then the other two DIs moved into the crowd like, like hyenas, like animals. And they came in and they'd isolate a weak recruit and they'd pull him off to the side. And they'd have him stand there in attention. There'd be one on either side of him. And they'd be yelling and screaming at him within centimeters of his, the skin on his face. And their eyes would be bulging and their jaws would be opening, gnawing. And just knew that if you just got anywhere near close to that mouth, they were going to devour you. Meanwhile, the rest of us, just blinded by the confusion and the panic of a mob, we just continue to push and fight our way down that stairwell. We look like blind men trying to flee a burning forest. Out the door onto the street, out onto the yellow footprints, carrying our gear. We stood there, a real motley-looking crew standing on yellow footprints in the middle of the night. Nobody had any idea of time. Time was no longer important down here. You didn't have any time. Time was the luxury for Marines, not for recruits. Stood there in the dark and the DI got up in front of us. And just to harass us, he'd come along and he'd knock your clothes and stuff out of your hands. Tell you to pick it up off the deck. And then he said, because you people are so stupid, you don't know left from right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to count really slow. I want you to lock arms, four abreast, hold your gear, and march when I tell you to. Ready, forward, march. Left, right, left. He started yelling at us because we weren't in unison. Left, right, and then out of nowhere. People make me sick. You're nothing but a bunch of cows. You march like a bunch of cows. Get down on your cow faces. Get those cow faces into the deck and give me 25 push-ups. And dropping everything we had, we just hit the deck and took our face and put it into the ground and tried to pump out as many push-ups as we could. So he started yelling, get up. Get up, damn it. Get on your feet. Get back into formation. Get your gear. Lock your arms. Ready. Forward. March. Left. I want to hear you moo, he said. I want to hear you moo like cows. That's all you are, cows. Moo as we march. So we all started mooing and mooing. And Caden said all that was missing was the cowbell. And so this cow, herd of cows, started to march its way with the cadence of the drill instructor. Left. Moo. Right left across the base and anybody that saw us or anybody that heard us they knew who we were in the marine corps eyes we were the lowest form of life on earth there's none lower none lower than that and we none lower than that and we marched across the across the base to our base wanted huts to our, at 0400 they put us to bed told us to lie at attention in our bunks until Reveille. I remember lying there at attention, listening to the jets taking off. My hut was adjacent to the San Diego runway. The only thing that separated me from freedom was a cyclone fence 
with Constantino wire on the top. The planes would be taking off in the pre-dawn hours. I knew they were going places. They were taking people far, far, far away from Platoon 3095. I knew they'd be headed north and east and west and south. But I also knew the plane that they had reserved for us was only going in one direction, west. My next stop would not be Portland. It'd be Da Nang. Lying there that night in that bed, I thought about being in the Marines. You know, a lot of men do. They think about, I want to be a Marine. But the distance between the desire to be one and to actually be one is a vast gulf. Young men join the Marines. They, most of them, I think, have something to prove to themselves and to others. And as the roar of the jet engines flew over my Quonset, I wondered what in the hell did I do? I wasn't interested in proving anything to anybody anymore. I just wanted to go home. When the lights clicked on at 0445 in the morning, a 50-gallon steel garbage can flew by my bunk and crashed into the galvanized steel wall of my Quonset announcing reveling. The day that I had dreaded lying in my bunk that morning had now arrived. Thrown into the cauldron, I started my day one of my transformation from a civilian to a Marine. I was standing in formation by the time the bugle stopped blowing Reveille. And Reveille is, of course, the sunrise wake-up call of the U.S. Armed Forces. And we're there with Bob. He's, he's recounting this as if it happened to him yesterday because, folks, like so many memories in our lives, the big ones, they stick. They stick forever. And we're going to continue with his great storytelling from Bob McClellan. The McClellan Files. This one was called The Blast Furnace. What a writer. And there are so many of you out there like him with stories to tell. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. We want to hear from you. We'll put you right on the air, just like we did Bob. Bob's story, here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And as you can imagine, with the extreme nature of the sport, snowboarding, when it started, caught on really fast. Its popularity skyrocketed when a young East Coast college grad made some innovative designs that have lasted to this very day. Here's Greg Hengler to tell us the story of the one, the only, Jake Burton and the sport that became a worldwide phenomenon. Snowboarding is now a well-established sport and has come in leaps and bounds. White 
It's the new gold. With its own culture, superstars, and equipment, competitions and events have become international staples. Snowboarding has evolved into different styles, including alpine racing, freestyle, free riding, backcountry, and more. But where did it all begin? Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro. It began in 1965 with the Snurfer. The Snurfer was invented by a Muskegon, Michigan engineer named Sherman Poppin. This contraption was a monoski. Two skis strapped together and ridden with both feet facing forward in the direction in which you are traveling. Like a skateboard or a surfboard, it had no binding. And like a sled, it had a rope attached to the nose to help with the steering. Ironically, skateboarding was birthed in a similar spirit when in the 1950s, kids attached roller skate wheels to small boards that they steered by shifting their weight. Here's Sherman Poppin discussing the birth of his snurfer. I developed the snurfer on Christmas Day uh, 1965 as a toy for my kids. And the motivation was uh, I lived on the shore of Lake Michigan and always uh, wished I could surf, but we never really had good waves. Anyway, I had these old Kresge skis and I put them together and we started riding perpendicular to the direction of travel, which is part of the patent. It turned out that it was an absolute blast. And my wife watched us through the window and she said, you know, that is really a fun thing. And that night, uh, she dreamed up the name Snurfer, which is a contraction of the word snow and surf. It was my dad who was out playing with us in the dunes who put the tether on. He'd fall down and the board would go down the hill. And he says, this is stupid. And I said, I agree. So the tether got on. Two purposes. One, you could just hang on to it so you wouldn't lose the board when you fell off. The other thing was you could sort of pull on it and swing it and literally steer. The motion's exactly the same as riding a, uh, the board today. Poppin patented the Snurfer in 1966. And in February 1968, he began holding snow surfing competitions at a Michigan ski resort every winter that attracted enthusiasts from all over the country. A year after Poppin patented the Snurfer in Cedarhurst, New York, the life of 13-year-old Jake Burton Carpenter started to unravel. Jake's older brother George was killed in Vietnam. And a few years later, his mother died as well. Jake even ended up getting expelled from his boarding school. Here's Jake Burton. I mean, I was a wise and when I was young, and to a fault. And when I got kicked out of Brooks was a school, and I went up to see the headmaster, who was a headmaster when my father was there and when my brother was there. It was brutal. I mean, my dad made me get in the car, go five hours, see this guy, you know, for a five-minute conversation, and then a long drive home, and that is when I decided to turn my life around and start applying myself to whatever the hell I did. In 1968, the 14-year-old Burton was one of the thousands of kids who purchased a snurfer for 10 bucks and was hooked. It became such an obsession that the 10 years and 100 prototypes later, Jake Burton Carpenter produced the Burton Backhill, 
one of the first snowboards he built with his saber saw out of his apartment on the Upper East Side of New York City. As for the name of his board, Jake figured Burton was a better brand name than Carpenter. Fresh out of college with a degree in economics from NYU, Jake traveled with his snowboard creation to Poppins National Snurfing Championship in Muskegon, Michigan in 1979. There were protests about Jake entering a non-snurfer board, so a modified open division was created and was won by Jake as the sole entrant. That race was considered the first competition for snowboards and is the start of what we now know as competitive snowboarding. Here's Poppin. When we had our contests, the college kids were, this was sort of like the hula hoop among college kids. They just took it over because it would run on one or two, three inches of snow. And there's a little ski area in Michigan, north of Grand Rapids called Pando. And Pando let, uh, let us have one offbeat chair for five hours when we run our contests and downhill and slalom. And, and uh, that's the way it was. And in 1979, 14 years later, uh, Jake showed up at one of our downhill slalom things. And he had snurfers, but he'd put a little piece of inner tube over to slip your sorrel under. That's how it all got started. Is, is, uh, that was the beginning. And uh, he and on the East Coast and Tom Sims on the West Coast were developing them at the same time. In an interview with Snowboarder Magazine, Burton paid full respects to his West Coast competition, stating, without Tom Sims to compete with in every sense and vice versa, snowboarding wouldn't be where it is today. Here's Jake Burton being interviewed in 1980. How'd you get into it? Well, uh, a company called uh, Brunswick Corporation used to make something called a snurfer a long time ago, and I rode those for about the last 10 years, and nobody really improved it. And living back east and just sort of getting flustered with that particular board, just decided to start making something on my own. In 1977, when Burton began making his own boards, he thought he would get rich quickly. He opened Burton Boards in southern Vermont. He had a logo contest and his sister-in-law won five bucks for coming up with the mountain logo that Burton still uses to this very day. Here's what Burton told Inc. Magazine. I don't know if I really understood supply and demand. People were like, a skateboard for the snow? I was a punky kid and my dad, who was always in my corner, said that I never finished anything. That was it. I wanted to prove him wrong. But in the second year of Burton's snowboarding company, things went from bad to worse. Here's Burton. I mean, I was like Willie Loman, and I was a traveling salesman, and I would load up my car. It was a Volvo wagon at the time. And I remember once going out with 38 snowboards, and I drove around New York State and visited dealers, and I went out with 38, and I came home with 40. Because one guy had given me two back. Burton decided to stop worrying about immediate profitability and focused instead on cultivating the sport of snowboarding itself. In 1991, he began sponsoring the world's best snowboarders. And like the Steinway Piano Company, who uses the feedback from sponsored pianists to improve their product, 
Burton demanded honest feedback from his sponsored athletes in order to better his design. Burton also began marketing his sport to the ski resorts, who were almost unanimous in blacklisting the snowboard from its slopes. And what an insight by Jake Burton. Create demand for your product by inventing an American sport, which he did. And when we come back, more of the story, this entrepreneurial story, this sports story, Jake Burton's story, here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Give us your email address, and we'll send you our five best stories each week, and it'll be really easy for you to get to the podcast and listen. Again, subscribe to our newsletter. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. When we come back, the rest of Jake Burton's story. Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Jake Burton. We ended with Burton deciding to put his snowboard product on pause and instead focus on cultivating the sport itself. Here's Greg Hengler with more of the story. Here's Steve Hayes, Burton team rider from 1984 to 1995, and professional snowboarder Tina Basich. One of the key things I think... um that um, besides Burton and going from resort to resort and, uh, and working with the marketing managers and general managers of the resorts was um, actually Eastern Edge was one of the, the magazines here that had a, a blacklist and they would put every resort that didn't allow snowboarding on the blacklist. But it was, it was different because uh, the group of riders back then were, you know, not necessarily outcasts, but, you know, everybody had, was, had their own you know, colorful personality. Whether it was long hair and listening to hardcore rock or whatever it was, it was it was definitely a, a different edge. And uh, you weren't doing it um, because you might get uh, a million dollar contract with Burton or one of these other sponsors that are out there. Um, there was no um, banner patrol and there wasn't a VIP lounge and a rider's lounge and a, you know, sponsor's area. It was all strictly in one room. And um, it was a, a group of, you know, surfers, skateboarders, and snowboarders getting together and, uh, and having this contest. We didn't have edges. We had fins on our boards. Some people weren't riding with high backs. We were inventing our equipment as we went every year. Tricks were being invented. We were crossing stuff over from skateboarding. And it was just an exciting time, and it will never be like that again. Here's editor of Snowboarder Magazine, Pat Bridges. Skiing and snowboarding in the 80s, it was a scary place. Lawyers ruled the day. And introducing something new to that environment was not welcome. And he took it upon himself as a challenge, and he literally did the legwork, went door to door, and sold our sport. You know, granted, you could question the motivations, be like, yeah, well, he's motivated by money, he wants to grow a sport, this and the other thing. Well, regardless of his motivations, 20 years later, there's 10 million snowboarders in the United States who reap, reap the benefits of that. You know. The daunting task of selling the sport of snowboarding to the ski resort gatekeepers cannot be exaggerated. Here's a news report from 1985 exemplifying the Herculean task Burton was up against. 
And because they're missiles. They cause, they cause nothing but problems, those things do. This is what all the fuss is about. It's like snow surfing. It's been around for almost a decade in the United States, and now it's becoming the trendy thing to do on our local ski slopes. But the operators of the hills want them off. Uh, the skiers, we try and keep them separated, but the s snowboards come down the slopes, and they'll go right in between the skiers, and we'll kick them off, and they'll just lip us off. And they're dangerous, because if one of these bo uh, skateboards or ski boards, whatever they're called, hit a person, they'd break their leg because they're just like a missile. And most of them have no brakes on them. So uh, nobody is allowing them on any of the mountains around. But where there's a will, there's always a way. Ski hill operators refuse to let anyone with a snowboard onto the chairlift. So they have to hike to the top of the mountain and then find a secluded ski trail where they won't get caught. The ski patrol says it's got its hands full. Quite a, quite a lot of them are uncooperative, smart alecks. You know, you go up and approach them in a very calm, collect manner, and they, they tend to lip you off. You ask them very nicely to leave, that they're endangering the public and possibly themselves. And they, uh, they swear at you, they tell you to get lost, mind your own business. So it's quite a problem for us, really. Do you see any compromise in the future at all? No. No, skiing is becoming more and more popular, and uh, if these boards become more and more popular, it's going to be more hassles, um, more confrontation. So we just like to say that we don't want them at all. Contrary to what ski patrol officers said, the ski industry was declining. It would be Jake Burton who would open both the chairlifts to the snowboarding community while simultaneously rescuing a flailing ski industry that was dead set on destroying the sport he founded. One by one, the number of ski resorts blacklisting snowboarders got shorter. Here again is Steve Hayes and Jake Burton. Over time, marketing managers said, you know, I believe Killington was one of the last holdouts in Vermont to, to allow snowboarding. And Killington marketing manager saw the name on a blacklist and they're like, geez, we can't have that. And actually, as the sport started to grow, the bottom line was these general managers could not be turning away dollars. There was a little bit of slump in the ski industry, and uh, this was one answer to fill in some of the voids that those guys were looking for extra revenue. So it was very, you know, it took a while before we got under resorts, and that was clearly a huge, you know, move in terms of growing the whole thing and sort of making it bigger. But it took a long time just to get there. As the sport grew, so did Burton's company. Burton has been one of the world's largest snowboard and snowboarding equipment manufacturers since the late 1980s. And Burton remains the pinnacle of sponsorship for snowboarders. Here's professional snowboarder Trevor Andrew. Oh, Jake is the man. Like, he's one of the realest people, you know. The riders to him, it seems like I've always... He's just considered them family, and he, he's just, since day one, you know, he's not the typical, like, owner of a huge company like that that you would expect, you know. He totally is, like, riding with you and just as stoked as everybody else about it. He's not, he's not all business. He's totally, like, loves snowboarding and loves the team, and that's just his thing. He's just, like, is so into it, and... I guess that's what's brought him so much success, you know, is just because he has genuine love for the, for the sport. He's one of the 
pioneers. Here's pro snowboarder Keir Dillon. And you hear it all the time. It's, you know, Burton's corporate, and it's crazy to think that that you're going to call the person that helped pioneer the sport, fought to get it in the mountains, made the R&D, invested so much money to bring it to where it is, you're going to call them corporate. It's like the best case scenario on the planet, you know, like the dude that it pretty much invented the sport, yeah, he's the corporate guy, it means he handled it and, and you have a dude that cares that much about snowboarding dictating where it goes. In 1998, less than a decade after Time Magazine called snowboarding the worst new sport, the International Olympic Committee sought it and the youthful audience it promised. Thanks to Burton, snowboarding is now one of the most watched events at the Winter Olympics. Here's professional snowboarder and Olympic gold and silver medalist, Hannah Teeter. He just wants the best product, and that's what we all want, you know. That's why it's, Burton's like the rider-driven company, is because they're all about input from us. You know, they want it to look good, but they want it to function more so. At first I was like, wow, he's the boss, like, you know, but he's just like a friend. He's just chill and great, he's just a down-to-earth guy. It was, it's nice to have a boss like that. <laughs> Not many people get nice bosses, but we do. Here's three-time Olympic gold medalist, Sean White. This is, honestly, this is where I like to see Sean backed into a little bit of a corner. Oh my lord! How perfect can you possibly land? I don't know, I've never really felt like it. he was a boss, ever. I don't know. It's been one of those things where he's just like, especially, I don't, I don't know if you've met him or not, but he's just like this really mellow, fun guy. He's like, you know, I think the first thing when we were hanging out, he made some joke about what some woman was wearing, you know what I mean? And I was so blown away by it that I, it caught me so off guard. I'm like, this guy rules. Like, he's all time. <laughs> Much has progressed since Burton initiated improvements to the snurfer, but the raw authenticity that formed the heart of the sport still remains. Here's Burton. Nobody's stopping snowboarders or, you know, from looking like NASCAR drivers, you know, and putting patches all over them and selling their, you know, themselves to everybody. I mean... That's not what people want to see. And that's kind of good. I mean, there is this sort of sense of couth that's associated with, I think, all board sports that we don't want to lose. And I think that um, that might keep things down a little bit, a little bit smaller. Hopefully it'll just sort of keep it seen. During his long tenure as one of snowboarding's true patriarchs, Jake's net worth is upwards of $100 million. Ten years after Jake founded Burton Snowboards, fewer than 7% of ski resorts even allowed snowboarding. But today, it's hard to find one that doesn't. Burton's Burlington, Vermont company, which he co-owns with his wife, Donna, remains the industry leader with five international offices and 845 employees. Not even Burton himself could have predicted this much success. I, I had no idea that what would happen with snowboarding. I mean, I saw a sport, but I did not see Sean White on the cover of Rolling Stone twice or snowboarding being in the Olympics or um, the stuff that's happened. And it's been the athletes that have made it happen and we've facilitated it, but it's been uh, exceeded, um, I wouldn't even say dreams because I never dreamt anything on the level that we're on now. 
I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And what a great story. We're smiling here in the studio. We're beaming because half the people who were quoted here sounded like they were stoners. But they started something new here in this country, a new sport, a new way of life, and they said no to the people in power. They challenged everybody from the owners of these resorts to Time Magazine itself, who said it was the worst new sport. Jake Burton's story here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our newsletter, give us your email address, and we'll send you the five best segments a week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. with our American stories and now it's time for our This Day in History segment brought to us by Hillsdale College the best place in America to learn about our nation's history the Constitution great literature all the things that matter in life in this feature you're about to meet someone you've probably heard of but who you likely don't truly know Shakespeare asked what's in a name when the name is Astor, the answer's easy. For more than 200 years, the Astor name has been synonymous with power, prestige, grandeur, luxury, elegance, and riches that royalty would envy. Astoria, Queens in New York and Astoria, Oregon are both named after him. Even the renowned hotel Waldorf Astoria in New York bears his name. This wealth earned John Jacob Astor many admirers, but also many bitter opponents. Astor united breathtaking willpower with global vision, all in a time when instant communication, or even telegraphs and railroads, were a distant dream, writes Phil Anschutz. Astor is a name unto itself, but then who really knows the man behind the name? a German immigrant who became America's first multi-millionaire. Johann Jakob Astor's life began in the tiny town of Waldorf, Germany in 1763. Johann and his eight siblings rarely had enough to eat. His mother died when he was three and his dad was an abusive drunk. Johann! At 15, Johann was finally able to escape this ordeal. He followed his oldest brother, George, who became a successful instrument maker in London. Johann Jakob Astor thus commenced an apprenticeship under his brother's tutelage. He quickly learned the secrets of making musical instruments and rapidly learned English as well. He became truly masterful in negotiating with British upper-class customers. 1783, the American War for Independence is over. Johann Jakob Astor decided to expand the musical instrument business across the Atlantic. At 20, he boards the North Carolina and sets sail for America to test the promise that through hard work, anyone can succeed. 
By this time, he's going by the name John Jacob Astor and speaks fluent English. After a 16-week arduous passage, Astor reaches the coast just outside of Baltimore. Shortly before reaching its destination, the ship runs aground on the ice. A disaster as the ship's provisions have been exhausted and a famine threatens all on board. But John Jacob does not want to wait for the thaw like the other passengers. The coast is in sight. He's the first and only one to climb from the ship and walk across the ice to Baltimore. For weeks, a penniless Astor walked along the coastline until he finally reached his new home. Here's Edwin Burroughs, historian at Brooklyn College. When the Astors arrived in New York, uh, the Revolutionary War had just finished, maybe three, four years earlier. Um, what they came to was a, 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 a village, really, uh, much smaller than modern Manhattan. Most of it is confined to the area below present-day Chambers Street. So it's a little tiny area, maybe a square mile at the southern tip of Manhattan. Had a population of maybe 30,000 people. There was also a, a, a small but growing number of poor landless whites and slaves in the town. New York was still a slave society. It was a place where many people doubted that New York had much of a future. So it was a time of great uncertainty, but I think also a time of great opportunity for people like the Astors who were willing to try their hand at, at anything that would make a dollar. Astor was a skilled salesman and clever strategist. As soon as his brother's instruments arrived from London, he took out advertisements in the newspaper and rented sales space. However, young Astor's career will be boosted by an unexpected and fortunate twist of fate. One morning, the merchant meets his landlady's daughter, a shy, no-nonsense girl named Sarah Todd. Sarah Todd was descended from a well-established Scottish family with excellent contacts to shipping companies and merchants, as well as business and social networks, which provided the requisite startup capital for his later businesses. Thanks to a $300 dowry, the young husband can open up his business after a short time. Luxury goods such as furs and fine musical instruments lure paying customers into his shop. While Sarah Astor worked in the shop, her enterprising husband was on the prowl in the backwoods of the United States. A mountain man of sorts. He discovered a new and extremely lucrative line of business, the fur trade. It was a time when the brown gold beaver pelt traded in the wilderness for a pittance, but would fetch a pretty penny in the outside world. For months at a time, Astor would hike through the forests to the Canadian border at Montreal in order to acquire furs that he could then later sell to his New York clientele. However, at that time, Montreal belonged to the British crown, and trading between the empire and foreign countries was strictly regulated. Nevertheless, in order to import furs from Montreal to New York, Astor used his connections. His merchants would first send the goods to his brother George in London, before shipping the now-declared goods back to New York. Astor is one of the few that ventured this and was able to crowd his competitors out of the market. 
And when we come back, more on the life of John Jacob Astor. This day in history, as always, brought to us by Hillsdale College. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now we return to the life of John Jacob Astor. I'm in New York City, standing at the corner of what is today Broadway and Astor Place. It was here where Astor built himself a pretentious mansion after 10 years of shrewd decision-making and hard work. By this time, Astor had four children, and Sarah Todd's dowry paid for itself 100 times over. Astor had become vain. He had a portrait of himself commissioned. Here's Lucy Cavaller, author of The Astors. Stewart made him look exactly the way he looked, and he was not a handsome man. He had a big nose and small eyes, and he got fat rather early. The painting wasn't flattering enough, so Astor refused to pay until the artist, the great Gilbert Stewart, who is best known for the unfinished portrait of George Washington, the one that appears on our $1 bill, painted a new one. I very much liked your portrait of George Washington, Mr. Stewart. I want my portrait to be moderate, but with a strong effect on the viewer. A portrait of a successful entrepreneur, a patriot, and a man of exquisite tastes. Yes, sir. Stewart complied and created a portrait to make John Jacob look like a refined gentleman with a much slimmer appearance. When the new century rolled around in 1800, Astor's fortune was estimated at a quarter of a million dollars, an incredible sum at a time when a family could live handsomely on about $800 a year. But Astor wasn't satisfied. He wanted to become a global player. He invested in ships that took furs around the world. China was a major market, and when the ships returned to America, they were filled with exotic spices, weapons and ammunition, silks, teas, and smuggled opium. Astor literally made money coming and going. But if he was proud of his success, he kept it to himself. Here's Astor's descendant, Jackie Astor Drexel. He was definitely a very secretive man. He liked to get things done and quietly and not have anyone realize what was going on. 
and he was thrilled by the idea that he'd made a million dollars before anyone knew that he could possibly have come close to that mark. In 1810, Astor dreamed of founding his own city. Up until now, the United States is comprised of only a few states along the eastern seaboard. But President Thomas Jefferson advocates the conquest of the west coast. Astor dispatched one of his ships, the Tonquin, to the west coast. He expected to earn enormous profit predicated on establishing trading posts between New York and what was then called Fort Astoria. Today, the small town of Astoria, Oregon, has 10,000 residents and is probably best known as the shooting location for Steven Spielberg's 1985 cult classic adventure comedy, The Goonies. Sorry, Dad. We had our hands on the future. We blew it to save our own lives. Sorry. It's all right. You and Brand are home safe with your mom and me. That makes us the richest people in Astoria. Walsh, you're looking at the richest people in Astoria. Before the global demand for furs collapsed, the canny businessman sold off his American fur company and cultivated new plans, real estate. His philosophy was simple, buy in acres, sell in lots. He understood how New York was growing and how to take advantage of that growth. Because if you could buy real estate further uptown in a faraway place from downtown like, say, Greenwich Village, which New Yorkers now think of as being sort of in the middle of New York, but in those days was a, a little farm village on the outskirts of the city. If you could buy land in Greenwich Village and just wait a few years, then suddenly the city was going to arrive and your investment would be you know, worth many times what you had originally paid for. A modern city must be like Karlsruhe or Mannheim. Mannheim is a contemporary city. Astor needed to convince the mayor, DeWitt Clinton, that New York must become a modern city. It's important for the real estate owner that no bad or good locations be created, but rather as many equal value locations as possible. 35th Street to 42nd Street. There. Now, these would be the streets. 35th Street, 36th Street, 37th Street. It is the real estate developer John Jacob Astor who bestowed upon New York its geometrical layout and sequential avenues and streets. One of his first acquisitions was a 75-acre lot purchased in 1803 from a debt-ridden whiskey distiller. Today, here in the middle of Times Square, sits that very parcel of land Astor bought over 185 years ago. Gentlemen, I present to you each with a pistol. Examine them closely. I will then count to 10. That same year, 
He also bought considerable land from the Vice President of the United States, Aaron Burr. Three, four, The very next year, Burr would kill fellow founding father, Alexander Hamilton, in a famous duel. Ten, ready! John Jacob's real estate dealings poured even more wealth into his coffers. Astonished by his colossal success, he once said, Could I begin my life again, I would buy every foot on the island of Manhattan. At the beginning of Astor's real estate endeavor, property appreciation was calculated at about one-third. It will be more than a hundredfold in the end. Astor was a charmed man living a charmed life, but one cloud darkened his horizon. Of John Jacob's six living children, one was mentally disturbed. It was his firstborn son, the one who should have been Astor's primary heir, John Jacob II. Astor hired a doctor to stay with his son all the time. He also built a house with a high wall around it to keep his disabled son confined. During the 1830s, Astor repeatedly travels to Europe. Only Waldorf, his place of birth, does he consciously avoid. Then the saddest of news awaited him upon returning home from one of his continental tours. Mr. Astor, welcome back to America. I have some bad news for you. Uh, first off, your wife, she has died. And one week ago, your, your brother is dead, too. And I also must tell you that your daughter, she has passed away as well. I'm so sorry. A witness reported that he'd never seen Astor so dejected as on this day. At first, Astor rambled around in his comfortable home, but it held too many memories. Yet Astor's ability to absorb setbacks and transform them into long-term gains was a legendary component of his success, writes Phil Anschutz. This resilience allowed him to rebound for a second act. And as always, we hear this theme again and again in our This Days in History segments, particularly the businessmen, resilience, and second, third, and sometimes even fourth acts. So many of the people we feature here not making it, really making it, until their 40s. In Ray Kroc's case, the 50s. And Bernie Marcus as well, the founder of Home Depot. Kroc, of course, the founder, truly, of McDonald's. When we come back, more on the life of John Jacob Astor.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And as always, our This Days in History are brought to us by Hillsdale College. And by the way, if you can't get to Hillsdale College, Hillsdale will come to you. They're terrific online courses. There's one on C.S. Lewis you can't miss. There's another on the Constitution called Constitution 101. It's a class that, well, even if you'd gone to a good law school, as I did, uh, it's better. It's just better. I didn't learn any of the things I learned in law school that I did sitting down in Dr. Larry Oren's class in Hillsdale, where I'm lucky enough to teach two weeks out of every year. Go to hillsdale.edu to catch all of their great work. And now we return to our This Day in History. And on This Day in History, John Jacob Astor was born. And when we left off last, at 70, this man decided to start a new chapter in his life. Again, folks, the age of 70 starts a very new chapter. Let's take a listen. So the aging entrepreneur came up with a new way to make money and leave the memories behind. At the age of 70, Astor demolished his home on Broadway and put up the largest and most expensive hotel in the United States. When it opened, it was called the Park Hotel. Only after it had become extremely profitable, his demands were satisfied, and it had developed a reputation for luxury and elegance throughout the city, did he rename it the Astor House, in order to connect his name with a positive business image. And it had 300 rooms, it had 17 bathrooms, it had carpeted corridors, every room had a basin and a pitcher, it had free soap, and of course, for all that luxury, you would have to expect to pay a lot, and people did, it cost $2 a day. Despite that exorbitant price, the hotel was a sensation. Anyone who was anyone stayed there. Abraham Lincoln, Charles Dickens, the Prince of Wales, Edgar Allan Poe, and even Davy Crockett. Today, the Waldorf Astoria Hotel is still located in the center of Manhattan, and its reputation remains untarnished. The hotel's success made Astor even more of a public figure. With so many more people now aware of his tremendous wealth, he received more and more requests for charitable donations. But he managed to sidestep these matters. A minister one day came in to see John Jacob Astor and said to him, Oh, you have the means to do so much good, it must give you a great deal of pleasure. To which John Jacob replied, oh, I don't know about that. Having the means doesn't mean that you have the disposition to do good. The situation outside of the hotel at the beginning of the 19th century was intensely distinguishable. New York is plagued with poverty. By the 1820s, uh, New York was famous around the world, actually, for a, a neighborhood known as the Five Points, which stood just just a little bit north and a little bit east of where City Hall now is. The Five Points was the, one of the worst slums in the Western world, this according to Charles Dickens, among others, who came and walked around it. Um, these are people who are flooding into New York from places like Ireland. They're desperately poor. They have, uh, they have no place to live. The city doesn't have an infrastructure to accommodate large numbers of people. That's my challenge! 
by the ancient laws of combat, we are met at this chosen ground to settle for good and all. Who holds sway over the five points? Us natives born rightwise to this fine land, or the foreign hordes defiling it. The density of the population in New York since Astor's arrival has increased dramatically. Originally, there were 30,000 residents, but now the metropolis has more than half a million. The situation is coming to a head. In 1837, there is an economic depression, which actually started in London, expanded to the European continent, and from 1837 through the early 1840s, targeted the US, which led many people in eastern states, where the depression was most prevalent, to pack their things and commence the famous overland treks to Oregon. Thousands go west as new federal states are established. The East stagnates. When Astor arrived, uh, what was the United States extended only along the eastern seaboard. It didn't even reach the Appalachian Mountains. By the time he died, California was a, on the threshold of becoming one of the states of the Union, and the United States encompassed much of, of what it now covers. That's a tremendous story, and it's, it's as much a, a, a remarkable story as the growth of New York City itself. And basically, New York in, in Astor's time, as he was really accumulating his big real estate fortune, was essentially wide open. It was a kind of Wild West atmosphere. Uh, and the only thing that really mattered, essentially, was a man's private word. The real estate prices in New York fall. Tenants move out or discontinue paying. Inflation gnaws at Astor's capital. He himself sees opportunity in this economic crisis rather than any kind of defeat and buys up more real estate, which after the crisis proves very profitable for him. Due to Astor's immense wealth, he can hold out a long time in order to weather out this economic depression. Thousands lose everything. Astor emerges victorious. Astor was very unemotional. He was very rational. He always knew when the time was ripe to engage in a line of business and when it was time to get out. Charles Dickens modeled Scrooge in his story, A Christmas Carol, after John Jacob Astor. I don't make many myself at Christmas. I can't afford to make a lot of idle people many. I hope to support the institutions we've just mentioned. They cost enough. People are badly off, they'd better go there. Many can't go there. Many would rather die. Well, if they'd rather die, they'd better do it. I'm sure that uh, my great-great-great-great-grandfather was probably greatly unscrupulous. In fact, uh, a lot of people have felt that to be the case. Astor's likeness to Ebenezer Scrooge may well be a likeness he justifiably earned. But like Scrooge, he also gave. And when we come back, we're going to learn about what happened to this vast fortune that John Jacob Astor put together. And as we learn in so many of these cases, so much of the great wealth that's accumulated by so many of these men and women end up going right back into the cities and into the places where they built those fortunes. And we're going to learn more about Astor and more about Astor's wealth after he died, after these messages from our local and our national sponsors. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. To listen to all of our This Days in History, go to Our American Network.
ouramericannetwork.org. We have nearly a hundred of them up there now. That's ouramericannetwork.org and click the This Day in History icon. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now the final installment in this great story of John Jacob Astor. And we left off with this Scrooge-like reputation. And let's take the story from there. Astor's likeness to Ebenezer Scrooge may well be a likeness he justifiably earned. But like Scrooge, he also gave. Here's Ivan Obolensky a descendant of Astor. There's a tradition in certain families that when you and the Astors were amongst the forefront, uh, if you make a lot of money, you give thanks by doing uh, good things uh, to uh, put it back in, to say thank you. Astor donated money for a mission in Waldorf, his place of birth. The sum of 500 gold dollars is worth so much in Germany that the mission can be built and operated simply from the interest. But Astor would also like to erect a memorial in the United States for posterity. During this time, Astor commissioned Washington Irving, the renowned author of Rip Van Winkle and The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, to write a history of his fur trading colony in Astoria, Oregon. It was during their collaboration that the storyteller shared an idea about what he thought Astor should build next. A library. Donate a public library to the city of New York. Just like in London and Paris. It will bear your name. No, that's quite all right. It will increase your popularity. It will make you immortal. Astor dispatched an agent to Europe in order to purchase books valued at several hundred thousand dollars. 
The Astor Library on 5th Avenue and 42nd Street, now known as the New York Public Library, though it receives no public funding, is to be a memorial for him and American democracy. It is the largest and most visible legacy from John Jacob Astor, who never saw it open. Here's New York historian Brendan Gill. Well, $400,000 for a library at that time is, is an astounding sum. It was a very large sum, but people were more surprised, I think, by the fact that he left anything uh, to charity, that he became a philanthropist on his deathbed, uh, was more startling than the sum itself. In 1848, Astor was 84 years old. His servants rocked him periodically each day so that his body had some exercise. Then on the morning of March 29, 1848, John Jacob Astor died at his home in New York City and was buried in Trinity Church Cemetery in Manhattan. But the death of John Jacob was not the end of the Astor dynasty. For almost 200 years, the Astors have influenced New York's high society. The great-grandson, John Jacob IV, is so famous that his death on the Titanic in 1912 made front-page headlines. Of all the wealthy travelers on the fateful ship, Astor was the richest man on board. The wealthy heir was returning from his honeymoon and became one of the 1,500 casualties. And, um... That's John Jacob Astor, the richest man on the ship. His little wifey there, Madeline, is my age and in delicate condition. See how she's trying to hide it? Quite the scandal. <laughs> His pregnant wife, Alice, was rescued and Vincent Astor was born. Then, in the middle of the 20th century, Vincent began putting the Astor money into a trust. His wife, Brooke Astor, who became known as the First Lady of Philanthropy, decided over her 105 years of life the importance of donating the entire fortune. In the year 2000, the then 98-year-old Brooke Astor was honored for her roughly $200 million Astor Foundation charity donation. My family used to say to me, Brooke, don't get beyond yourself. She thought, uh that all the Astor wealth was made in New York, so she should spend in New York, reinvest in New York. Try to always help them, everybody, and if they're absolutely nuts and stupid, well, stay away from them. <laughs> she used her giving as a catalyst for others to give. And second, she used her clout as a first lady of New York an official first lady of New York, to generate others to give it. And that was one of the important points. I want to be known for being one of the first people to really go and see what to give to, because I think you can give much more intelligently if you see what you're giving to. Astor Foundation projects benefit the young, the old, the sick, the healthy, and everyone in between. The Astors have created a unique legacy, a legacy not lost on the current generation of Astors. I don't think about it every day, but every now and again it, it dawns on you, think, gosh, it's nice to be connected with a family that has a name of such recognition, to be an Astor. 
The poor immigrant, John Jacob Astor, would be astounded to see how far his family and his fortune have come. And as always, great job on that, Greg. And if you've ever had the chance to get to the New York Public Library, and again, there is nothing public about it in terms of financing, it's just open to the public, and go to the reading room of the New York Public Library and do something crazy. Get a book and read. It's an amazing place. And there are people actually in there reading and writing, and they're from all over the world. And Bryant Park is magnificent. And the building, you just can't believe that one person did this. Yeah, Mr. Stingy, Mr. Tightwad, well, he kept all that money. He knew how to make the money. And look what happens to the succeeding generations. And anybody who ever grew up around New York City knew the impact that Brooke Astor had on that city. And it was astounding. And she was always kneecapping people and pushing people into giving to just terrific causes. And again, imagine $200 million going towards in a very private effort the people who needed it the most. And this is the story of most American wealth in this country, folks. And you don't hear it anywhere else. And you're certainly never going to hear these stories on any college campus. You're just not, because it would really upset the myth and the narrative. We learned from Bernie Marcus that he had started with nothing. He got hired, hired and fired a few times, fired at the age of 50, and then founded on a napkin Home Depot. And when it was over, he had a, he had a fortune, And his Jewish tradition of tzedakah, which is the equivalent of Christian tithing, propelled him into charitable giving. And he had recalled his mom, even when they had no money growing up in Newark, New Jersey, always saying, we've got to give to people who are less off. By the way, we've forgotten this. We don't require the poor to give too. And tithing was required by all of us, all of us, rich and poor. And Bernie decided to build the Georgia Aquarium. And by the way, not the Marcus Aquarium the Georgia Aquarium, for the state that gave him all the opportunities to build that great company. And it was $250 million. And he built it himself. And poor kids could always go for free and see fish. And go figure. And again, you're not going to hear that story. Guy starts with nothing, comes from Russia as a Jew, gets discriminated against through much of his young life, builds an incredible enterprise, and then gives almost all of it away. And what part of that story don't you like, folks? And that's what we do here in Our American Stories. We tell the stories of great wealth. We love telling the stories of small businesses, of immigrants. Go to our July 4th story on all the different folks who've come from all over the world and taken that induction and that oath of loyalty to the U.S. Constitution and to this country, which, by the way, should be required of every citizen at the age of 18. Everyone should have to take that oath, and you should read it one day. It'll move you. And... That's what we do here. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to catch all of our storytelling. Our This Days in History will capture many of the great businessmen's rise to wealth. And then, as almost is always the case, you'll learn this in the Rockefeller story, uh, then that wealth gets redistributed, redistributed by the person himself who built that wealth back to the people, not to the government, so the government can decide how to redistribute that wealth. And it's a beautiful thing. And... Again, OurAmericanNetwork.org. Catch the stories, and most of those done by Greg Hengler, who is always uh, a silent type on this show. We try to get him to talk, and, and we prod him, and we, and we push him, and then every once in a while he'll explode on the Hengler rants. And uh, so you can go to the Hengler rants and catch some of the old ones and some of the good ones. Uh, and once again, 
Our American Stories. Go to our This Day in History. I think we have a hundred of them, or a hundred plus. And as always, our This Days in History brought to us by our friends at Hillsdale College. And go to hillsdale.edu to catch all of their great storytelling. And right now, their C.S. Lewis series, a 10-part series on the great British theologian, uh, it'll get you. And he's the, he wrote the Chronicles of the Nar- Narnia and, of course, Mere Christianity, which may be one of the greatest theological works, plain, simple, and startling. If you don't believe in God, you'll have to rethink it. And if you do believe in God, maybe you'll know a little bit more why you do. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. <laughs> 